This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. Welcome back, everybody. Today, I am thrilled to say that we are joined again by David Savage of the Los Angeles Times. David Savage has covered the Supreme Court and legal issues for the LA Times in the Washington Bureau since 1986. He has covered the Senate confirmation hearings for all of the current justices. In addition to writing about the court's work, he has written on the legal battles that have raged in Washington. And we are so happy to have him back. David, welcome. And thank you for passing judgment with us again. Good to be with you, Jessica. So, David, one of the things that I want to talk to you about as one of the nation's experts on the Supreme Court is themes that you see for this term. And I know you and I have talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but you zeroed in on something that's so important, and that's how there is a lower court of appeals, the Fifth Circuit, that's really pushing the Supreme Court in a particular direction and or pushing an agenda. And I now feel like it's important that we say this out loud. The Fifth Circuit is very aggressively pushing the Supreme Court. Could you talk to us a little bit more about what that means and how you're seeing that play out? Yes. So I agree with that general theme. It's like the big question that overrides this court term. So as you know, there are six conservative justices among nine. We know most of the rulings, most of the decisions, this court's going to lean right and it's going to be conservative. But there's a big difference between sort of a moderate, go slow, John Roberts style conservative, where there's a little bit of a variation in the, in the uh, decisions, or a sort of hard right conservative where the, particularly at the Fifth Circuit, they're willing to remake the law in a big way and hand down some rulings that seem, to my mind, and many really sort of extreme uh, readings of the law. But I can't think of a, a similar example quite like this. As you know, the Ninth Circuit was a sort of favorite target for the Supreme Court for decades, but that was a liberal appeals court and a conservative Supreme Court. So the conserv Supreme Court was sort of like saying no to the Ninth Circuit, we're not going to do this. But this is a situation where we've got a conservative Supreme Court and an extremely conservative Fifth Circuit Court. So they're sending up these cases the U.S. Supreme Court almost has to take. So we're in this unusual situation where the uh, Fifth Circuit Court is really sort of driving the agenda uh, of what the Supreme Court's going to do this year and I suspect for the next few years. And it's so extraordinary because, as you say, the divisions on the Supreme Court, I think, are really between who's very conservative and who's moderately conservative or pretty conservative. But then the division between the Supreme Court and the Fifth Circuit is the same in the sense of its shades of conservatism as opposed to a liberal Ninth Circuit pushing the Supreme Court. I think listeners are probably familiar with the Mifepristone case, the abortion pill case that I want to come back to later. But what are there specific cases that maybe have already reached the court or about to reach the court where you see the Fifth Circuit really hitting the gas? Well, let's start with two. One on the Second Amendment, one on the First Amendment. The Supreme Court two years ago, two terms ago, a year ago, and Clarence Thomas' opinion basically said, 
There is a right to carry a concealed gun in public. Pretty big ruling in itself. But Thomas then wrote an opinion that says, basically, the Second Amendment prevails. The right to have guns prevails unless you can show there's a history of or tradition of a law, a similar gun restriction in 1791 or at the time when the Second Amendment was adopted. And I remember the day that opinion, all of us read that opinion and said, wow, this is going to lead to a lot of litigation. Well, the Fifth Circuit, not long after that, got a case of a fellow who had um, had a domestic violence restraining order in Texas because he beat up his girlfriend. He he had a series of shooting incidents. He was seen by the police as sort of a dangerous guy. Texas has a violence restraining order. And there's a federal law that says if you're under a domestic violence restraining order, you lose your right to have guns. And pretty commonsensical. Who would want to countenance the idea of somebody being both a dangerous threat to a, a wife or girlfriend or whatever, and also has guns. This guy was arrested. He had a couple guns. His guns were taken away. He uh, appealed. And lo and behold, the Fifth Circuit Court said the entire law is unconstitutional, violates the Second Amendment. Mr. Rahimi is an American citizen. He has Second Amendment rights. And there's no laws like that in uh, 1791. Did you know that, Jessica? There were no domestic violence restraining orders in 1791. And that was enough to strike down the law. And the Supreme Court has granted cert on that case. So it's both practically speaking and in a sort of big picture law sense, quite a big deal whether the Supreme Court is willing to go along with the idea that taking guns away from somebody under a domestic violence restraining order is a Second Amendment violation. And this case seems to me to be pushing the Supreme Court to say, are you really going to adhere to that Bruin test that Justice Thomas laid out? Because as you said, the test says, well, let's look at the Second Amendment at the time that it was ratified what was the history and tradition? Was there a similar type of regulation in place? Of course, there wasn't, in part because, let's think back, women weren't full citizens at that time. There was no corollary to domestic violence restraining orders. Now, one of the things I need to remind myself of more is how the court has control over its docket. They granted cert in this case. Do you think that they had a choice. Do we read anything into the idea that they decided to take this case at all? Well, so yes, they have um, discretion over their docket, but the one category of cases they almost always take, and I think they feel like they have to take, is when a lower court strikes down a federal law as unconstitutional and the government appeals, the Solicitor General appeals and says, wait a minute, <laughs> they've just struck down a major federal law. So I really think this was in the category of all nine of them would say, well, yeah, we we need to uh, decide this. And we need to decide the question, exactly the question you posed. I don't know that they'll say it quite like that, but they should say it the way you said is, are we really serious about this history and tradition? Are we really going to apply that uh, to all these cases and say, oh, well, gee, if there was no law like this in 1791, too bad the law falls. I suspect Clarence Thomas and uh, Sam Alito if they were on the podcast here, would say, yes, that is our view. But I, but I really, uh, I'm not sure that there's a majority for that. And that's going to be one of the interesting things to watch with this case. Well, and 
I want to come back to the Fifth Circuit, but this case and the Bruin case that we've been talking about that laid out that new standard of history and tradition when it comes to the Second Amendment, they're both potentially implicated by a criminal case involving the president's son. And I know that you've written about this before, but Hunter Biden has, of course, been charged with gun-related crimes. And one of them involves a federal law that would prevent people who are using certain types of drugs from buying and possessing a gun. And one of the defenses that we might see from Hunter Biden is that that law is actually not constitutional under the Bruin test. Do you see that argument moving forward from Hunter Biden? Could Hunter Biden, the Democratic president's son, potentially be the one to bring the next big Second Amendment case that the Supreme Court adds more meat on the bones of that Bruin test? Well, uh, in one sense, Jessica, I think the answer is yes, only in the sense that that's a background fact that all of the no justices will know. In other words, again, if you're really serious about this, uh, doesn't it knock down quite a few different gun-related prosecutions? And I must say, Hunter Biden seems like a less serious offender than uh, the fellow in Texas who was shooting off the guns in public and, and beating up his girlfriend. I think Hunter Biden was accused of, you know, not telling the truth that he had a drug problem or something when he lied on the form when he got a, a gun. It illustrates that there are a lot of regulatory laws involving guns. So yes, I think there will be a lot of cases come along. The classic will be the felon in possession who is not a dangerous guy. There's a lot of situations where, how about the person who is a felony tax fraud or something like that, or some sort of business crime? Several years ago, when Amy Barrett was a judge on the Seventh Circuit, she wrote a dissent basically saying, we shouldn't take away guns from people who had passed felony convictions if the felony had nothing to do with violence or whatever. In other words, I think that issue is going to come up relatively soon. The felon in possession, because the Supreme Court has basically opened the door to that. I think Hunter Biden may benefit from that, although I don't think his case will move along and I don't think it's where the court would like to go about taking up the president's son's case as a test of the Second Amendment. I completely agree. I think they will be united in their excitement to avoid that case. Let's run back to the Fifth Circuit. We talked about this big Second Amendment case. Another case that you're following involves social media and the First Amendment and laws that try to, in my view, direct social media companies in terms of their ability to kick people off their platform or not kick people off their platform. Could you tell us why this is one of the cases, in your view, that's one of the ones to watch this term? Big reason to watch this is not just uh, politics. It happens to be these are two laws, one from Texas, one from Florida, both conservative state laws. And the complaint was social media is unfair to conservatives. The Supreme Court has to come up with some view about the status of social media. That is, you know, where do they fit on the sort of First Amendment perimeter? Are they private companies that handle content and speech? And if they are, you would think they have full First Amendment rights to their own content, like a newspaper or a TV network. 
But Clarence Thomas has suggested, no, they're, they're more like a common carrier because they're so ubiquitous, so they handle so much material and they're the, the conduit for so much information. They're sort of like a common carrier and then subject to regulation. And I thought, wow, that, I mean, that's a, quite a different view if, if you're, first of all, saying the government can regulate them. But even if you said social media can be regulated by the government, who would start with the ideas, oh, let's each state do it? California is going to have a different view about what should be on social media than Texas is going to have. So I think uh, there's a potential big mess if the Supreme Court says yes to the states and their authority to regulate social media. But it's an interesting situation in that this, as I say, there was a Texas law, Florida law, goes before the appeals courts, Trump judges at the 11th Circuit and Trump judges and the Fifth Circuit, and they split. The Fifth Circuit judge and a former Sam, a clerk for Sam Alito and, and a former counsel to Greg Abbott, the Texas governor, guess what? Ruled for Texas Governor Abbott and said that the state had the authority to regulate social media because the social media was engaging in censorship, and censorship violates the First Amendment. The uh, Kevin Newsom, the judge in the 11th Circuit in Atlanta, said, no, social media are private companies. They put up information. The First Amendment protects them, not the government. The government can't regulate what they put up. And so the Supreme Court's going to hear both cases and say either yes or no to the state's right to regulate social media. I read those opinions and they were fascinating. As you said, both Trump judges, both conservative jurists coming to very different decisions. I have to think that for the current court, particularly looking back on last term when they tried to kind of wade into the Communications Decency Act, when they tried to dip their toes into potentially regulating social media companies, and then Justice Elena Kagan had that great line of, you're not looking at like the nine greatest experts on the internet here. I have the sense that they're going to want to acknowledge who they are, their level of expertise, and maybe not go too far too fast, which in my view would be to maintain a status quo and adhere to what the 11th Circuit has done. But we will see. I know that, again, another example of the 5th Circuit moving very quickly and in a very conservative direction. Now, there's another case, that, and you mentioned it and I alluded to it. The court hasn't yet taken this case. It's also from the Fifth Circuit, and it involves abortion, except it doesn't involve abortion. And of course, we're talking about the Mifepristone case, and we're talking about the case that involves the FDA's approval of Mifepristone and then later decisions that the FDA made to make it easier for women to obtain mifepristone so that they could have a virtual appointment and to be able to obtain mifepristone earlier in a pregnancy. Very briefly, there was a district court judge, Judge Kaczmarek, who essentially said the original approval from the FDA was wrong and the later changes were also beyond the FDA's power and authority. The Fifth Circuit kind of pulled back and said, you know what, when it comes to that original approval, we're time barred. The statute of limitations has run. That was 20 years ago. But we think it would be appropriate to roll back the changes that the FDA made in 2016 and 2021 
to make it easier to obtain mifepristone. That decision is stayed by the Supreme Court now. I think it feels destined for the court. And so it has everything to do with abortion in my mind, but then also nothing to do with abortion because it's about the FDA's power and their ability to approve of drugs. I guess the first question is, do you agree with that general background? And given that, is there a way for the court to avoid this? Part of what Justice Kavanaugh said is, I heard him say, I want to get out of the business of making big abortion decisions for a while. Well, so yes, the way you described it and set it up is exactly right. I think this is another one that's in the category of one that the court almost has to take. Because again, it's a lower court striking down, at least in part, a federal regulation. Also, as you were describing it, it always reminds me, I thought the, um, as I said a few minutes ago, that I thought the Second Amendment decision was pretty extreme to say Second Amendment right for, for guys who are under domestic violence restraining orders. I thought the uh, decision involving social media and the idea that Texas gets to regulate them was pretty extreme. But the case involving the abortion pills, I think, is other dimension out there. And I say that because you think, what part of the law would anybody say that we're going to have a single judge sitting in Amarillo, Texas? They went to him because he's known to have very extreme views on abortion. His opinion begins by talking about chemical abortion to kill the unborn. And he takes it upon himself to say, not that the abortion medication is unconstitutional, certainly not, not to say that federal law doesn't empower the FDA to make decisions about drugs that are safe and effective or not safe and effective. That's how Congress has set it up, and that's how our system works. The Food and Drug Administration reviews and approves drugs that it deems to be safe and effective. No, we're going to have Judge Kaczmarek say, I've read some of the studies, and I don't find them that convincing. I've seen some stuff online that really raises questions about this. And I'm going to say, Judge Kaczmarek, that that approval of the FDA way back in 2000, I've decided uh, those are arbitrary and capricious under the Administrative Procedures Act, and therefore they must be vacated or, or fall nationwide. That, is, that strikes me as just an extreme decision beyond the pale of most even extreme decisions. And then he gave the government like seven days to respond. So the, the Justice Department had to respond, go to the Fifth Circuit, the Fifth Circuit issued a and then the Supreme Court put it all on hold. So yes, but I think because of the status, the posture of the case, the Supreme Court has basically said, we're going to put it on hold until the Fifth Circuit rules, and then we're going to take it up and decide. So I think at some point in the fall or the winter, they will take this case and decide on whether the FDA made some error. They approved a drug or issued new regulations that are not justified by the facts or the evidence. But even for the Supreme Court, I think my general impression is their view is just like we're not experts on you know, social media, they're not experts on drugs and what's a safe drug and how do you know it when you see it. I think their inclination is going to be to say, you know, that we usually defer to the FDA to decide questions about the safety of drugs. Well, and of course, as I view it, there's an escape hatch here for the court where they can say, sorry, there isn't standing here. The doctors and nonprofits who brought the case 
who had, I think, a very bizarre theory of standing, which would have, in my mind, really enlarged the doctrine to, we might at some point have to treat a woman who had a side effect from mifepristone, and that's my injury. That's not how I view the current state of the standing doctrine. And it could allow the court to unite around a very quick ruling where they say, it has nothing to do with abortion. It has nothing to do with abortion. It's all about who can bring these cases. I think that's exactly right, Jessica. I, I agree with that 100% is that there'll be a strong inclination to make this case go away as quickly and thoroughly as possible. Their claim of standing is, is also, in my view, really extreme. <laughs> as you said, there are doctors who are opposed to abortion. They obviously don't prescribe these pills. Uh, they don't perform abortions. They want nothing to do with it. The best they could come up with, as you said, is somebody said, well, I may be working in an emergency room on a Saturday afternoon when some woman comes in and I may have to treat her. And that's probably not true unless there's nobody else available. When I heard about this case, and there was a lot of opposition and cases of people suing to say, I've got religious objections and I shouldn't have to take a COVID-19 vaccine. I, I've got questions about vaccine, and you, the government, or you, my state, shouldn't force me. Now, that was a hard-fought allegation. But imagine if me and some of my fellow opponents of COVID-19 went to court saying, the rest of the American population, me, you shouldn't be able to take COVID-19 because I've got an objection to it. You wouldn't go to court and you say, well, you don't have standing to try to object to the vaccine that's been put on the market and millions of people want to take because it was a little bit like this. These people are objecting to the abortion medication that they and their patients will never touch and have nothing to do with. They don't want other women, other people, and other doctors to have access to a safe and effective medication because they don't like the idea that it involves abortion. Right. And in my view, um, you said you wouldn't walk into court and argue that. Well, maybe you would in the right district court and maybe you would in the Fifth Circuit because it seems to me that that's what happened here. I could talk to you about these cases forever, but I know our time is limited. And you wrote a great profile of Justice Kavanaugh recently in the Los Angeles Times. You wrote a piece about the difference between John Roberts on the one hand and Justices Thomas and Alito on the other hand. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the current composition of the court. We all know, or people who are listening, I think, know, well, it's a conservative court. It's a conservative six to three majority. There are three liberals. But there's a lot of, as we talked about in the very beginning of our conversation, there's a lot of gradation in that six-member conservative majority. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us about the piece a little bit and where we think Justice Kavanaugh might fit in the future. Yes, that is why I wrote the piece, because I think a lot of people at a general level say, there's six conservatives, we know where they're headed, uh, and, and they all basically are headed in the same direction. A lot of that is correct. <laughs> you know, in other words, it is unquestionably so that on abortion, affirmative action, they've handed down a series of big rulings and they are very conservative as a group and that's not going to change. But there are some real differences between John Roberts and, um, say, Clarence Thomas and, and uh, Justice Alito. Roberts and Kavanaugh are, I think of them and they think of themselves as Reagan Bush era conservatives. 
You know, this is a little bit like the issue we talk about a lot or read about in politics. There are moderate conservative Republicans. Think of a guy like Mitt Romney or Liz, Liz Cheney in the Congress. But now he's on a very different part of the party than the sort of mega Trump conservatives. And in a small sense, there's a little bit of that at play in the Supreme Court. But as I say, Roberts and Kavanaugh think of themselves as Reagan-Bush conservatives, and he likes to talk in public. John Roberts likes to talk in public about the court being nonpartisan and nonpolitical. You can only say that so long before, you know, you have to like stand up and show that you're different. And in this past year, you know, there were some clear examples. The idea that John Roberts and then Brett Kavanaugh joined in the Alabama case to say, we're not going to allow the Alabama Republican Party not to create a second majority black district that was a situation where a black Democrat could be elected in that district versus a white Republican. The four on the uh, right of the court were willing to rule for the Alabama Republicans, but Roberts and Kavanaugh were not. And there were several other cases this term where Kavanaugh was with Roberts on a sort of moderate conservative track. And so I really think going forward, that's going to be the big divide in the court. I think it's going to be unquestionably conservative, but the issue is whether Clarence Thomas and Justice Alito are sort of driving the court further right in line with the Fifth Circuit, or whether Roberts and Kavanaugh, at least on some cases, on some fronts, are going to pull back and say, for example, on gun regulation or whatever, I'm in favor of the Second Amendment, but I'm not in favor of, for example, gun rights for people who are involved in domestic violence. That's going to be the interesting thing, I think, to follow in this term ahead and for the next few years. We're turning right. The question is how much. In the Alabama case, I thought they just did not have a good reason for drawing their maps the way they did and not having another minority-majority district. and. I thought that John Roberts would have gone along with whittling away at Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is the law that was at issue in that case, if it had been a slightly different case with slightly different facts. So I think you're absolutely right. That was one of the examples where he clearly did pull back from a very conservative position. But I'm wondering if there was a case that maybe looks more like the South Carolina case. If John Roberts, who has been hostile to the Voting Rights Act since well before he was on the Supreme Court, is going to say, okay, this is the better vehicle to whittle away at the protections and promises of Section 2. Well, yes. In the South Carolina case, there's going to be a six-vote majority to say no to the, the racial gerrymandering claim. But Roberts thought that's not it doesn't even involve the voting rights. That South Carolina case is tricky because it's very hard to figure out, like, other than the words, what's at issue? Because they moved around a lot of people and it was only like a 1% change. But I did go into the Alabama case thinking Roberts has been a steady skeptic of the Voting Rights Act, but this was the unusual case, and Brett Kavanaugh brought it up, where it was relatively easy to create a compact district that would have a majority or near majority of African Americans. Voting is very polarized. The only way blacks can get elected is if there's a district where there's a, a close to a majority. But 
it could be done in this case. You didn't have to draw squiggly lines and sort of a crazy looking district. And both of them thought that's basically what the Supreme Court said back in the uh, mid 1980s after the Voting Rights Act was amended that you could give African Americans a right to elect representatives of the choice, an equal right or chance to elect representatives. And that's what was at issue in Alabama. The state could have created a compact black majority and the Republicans wouldn't do it because they knew that they would lose a seat if they did it. And that's what Roberts and Kavanaugh knew. And so they could go along with that. You're right to suggest it doesn't mean that they're going to be with a liberal group for a whole lot of race-based redistricting or whatever. They won't. But at least in some cases on the margin, they're willing to say, no, that's what the law called for, and that's what we're going to say in this type of situation. Of course, as Justice Elena Kagan said, isn't this case kind of a slam dunk? So maybe that that case maybe wasn't at the margin. But David Savage of the Los Angeles Times, it's always a slam dunk to have you here. I wish we could talk longer. I'm so grateful for your time, and I hope you'll come back towards the middle end of the term, and we'll talk more and see how these cases progress. I will look forward to it, Jessica. 